Data Mesh Radio is provided as a free community resource by Data Mesh Understanding. It is produced and hosted by me, Scott Hurlman. I started this podcast as a place for practitioners to get useful information about Data Mesh, and we're at over 200 episodes. I've now left Data Stacks, you know, thanks for all their help in founding things, but I've left to start Data Mesh Understanding, which is also helping practitioners to get to the information needed to do Data Mesh well. We have free implementer introduction and roundtable programs, in addition to the more advanced yet affordable offerings. So please do get in touch if you're looking for more information on how to do, how to approach Data Mesh. Just check datameshunderstanding.com for more info. There's also a helpful organization of past Data Mesh radio episodes there if you want to dig into specific topics rather than digging through 200 different episodes. So with that, let's hit the funky intro music and listen to what you'll hear about in this interview episode. This is a Data Mesh Summit takeover week. Data Nova, the Data Mesh Summit, is next week, the Feb- February 9th and 10th. Ahead of the conference, I'm interviewing four of the presenters from the conference about topics related to Data Mesh, not necessarily about their talks either. In exchange, Starburst, who is putting on the Data Mesh Summit, will be sponsoring some transcripts for Data Mesh radio episodes, which is awesome. So please check out the show notes and sign up for the Data Mesh Summit using the link. And please let Starburst know that you want more transcripts too. It's really important for accessibility reasons. And now a quick word from Starburst about why you would want to attend Data Mesh Summit. Hi, I'm Jess. Here are the top six reasons you should attend Data Nova, the Data Mesh Summit. The next reason is to hear our CEO, Justin Borgman, offer his take on the rise of the Data Mesh movement and what it means for your organization. Justin will demystify Data Mesh and share concrete ways to begin your journey. Join this session to hear how to achieve quick wins and how Starburst can help you. Register now. In this interview, I chatted with Dr. Colleen Tarto, Director of Engineering at Starburst. We covered a lot of interesting things, including spending some time on useful analogies, read food and Data Mesh, hence the title of Food Fight. And yes, we both miss brunch quite a bit. (laughs) She shared her concept of a data mesh as a brunch buffet, and I shared my analogies re-grocery stores and dishes in a meal. Um, I think they're helpful to explain data mesh to others, especially those that aren't as in-depth in the um, challenges and pains of modern data organizations. We moved on to the modern data stack and how, in Colleen's mind, it is really just a repeat of what we've tried to do with data for two plus decades. Instead of dealing with data at the source and figuring out how to properly expose data, instead of just exposing the operating model, data people are just trying to be productive within a broken system, but with cloud-based tools. It's kind of the same old, same old, and the definition of insanity is to do the same thing over and over and expect different results. 
Colleen shared her four S thinking for speed, scalability, simplicity, and SQL. This is, of course, fodder for Starburst uh, relative to SQL, but I think it has merit to figure out what outside of SQL does your company really need. I'm skeptical of large organizations not using a polyglot approach to data mesh, but maybe not as much skepticism for smaller orgs just trying to find a good way to share their data reliably. Can they get away with not doing all of the polyglot and that approach and make for a simpler platform? I think we need to discuss it. I think it's an interesting question to answer. That all dovetails nicely into some conversation about when a company needs to transition to data mesh. We both agree that starting out with data mesh from day one from the actual architectural side is probably silly, but starting with a mindset that aligns with data mesh's principles from day one is probably going to go much better for an organization. I think this is the question that a lot of people have of who is doing data mesh and what's the bar to saying you're doing data mesh. Is it that you're actually implementing a data mesh made up of the data products as Jamak has laid out? Or are you having a mentality at least of just sharing your data and that the domains own the data and that you're trying to treat your data as a product. Where's the line there? I don't think anybody should necessarily be the one who draws a very, very uh, rigid line or, or strict line, but I think it's important to have that conversation about how much of data mesh do people need when, because there is an investment to putting it together. There's lots of useful tidbits sprinkled throughout, and I think anyone feeling the pain of data culture swamped by the issues is your Mac regularly talks about, we'll be nodding along to a large portion of the episode. I think there's a lot really in there and it's just kind of a fun conversation, at least from my end and Colleen's end. So I think you'll really enjoy it. And with that, I think we should jump in. Okay, enough of just me. Let's hear from our awesome guest in this interview episode. excited as part of the Data Nova takeover of Data Mesh Radio this week. Um, I've got Dr. Colleen uh, Tarto, Director of Engineering at Starburst. Really excited. We're going to start with uh, some different uh, analogies around food. We're going to call that the food fight uh, relative to Data Mesh so people can figure out how to share what data mesh is and and share it with people that aren't nearly as kind of deep into the technology in that aspect. Um, and then we were going to talk about kind of modern data stack and data mesh and how that uh, kind of intersects as well. But it, it, I think it would be great, uh, Colleen, if you could give a bit of an intro to yourself and kind of who you are and, and how you came into this data mesh world. And then we can jump into kind of the food fight aspect. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Scott. I'm Colleen Tarto, and I started my career getting a PhD in astrophysics, which feels super unrelated to what I do now. But honestly, I was just 
using telescopes to amass huge quantities of data and clean it and aggregate it and start doing analytics. So really at the base of it, it was big data and analytics, even though that wasn't really a thing way back in the 1990s, but necessarily, but, uh, you know, we didn't have tools to help with the data engineering or the analytics and we wrote everything ourselves. And, you know, I didn't know what I wanted to do after I graduated, but I ended up working as a consultant focusing on ETL and big data and then moving more into the analytics and data science world as a management consultant. And uh, the more I got into data science, the more I realized that the data was always the bigger piece of the equation. And frankly, to me, that was the more interesting piece. And most companies at the time were saying, let's do AI, let's do ML, but they had no real handle on their data or its quality. And so I kept feeling pulled back into the data engineering side of things. And so I worked for a while leading data engineering and analytics teams at a few different startups, building teams and environments off of what could be called the modern data stack. And I was experiencing a lot of the same pain points a lot of data folks feel these days. Um, And so now I work for Starburst Data here in Boston, and we're doing some amazing things. We're going to blow up the world of data engineering, change the world forever. You know, no big deal. Um, But I've been at Starburst since June of 2020. I'm a director of engineering for our data data products line of business. Um, I've been interested in data mesh conceptually since I first read Jamak's paper on Martin Fowler's blog in 2019. And I was at a different startup and I was like, we have to do this. And you know, then COVID hit and layoffs hit and everything. So that didn't happen. But I really do think data mesh addresses so many of the pain points that are common in data organizations that I've led, as well as ones I've seen as a consultant. And so, you know, here I am on data mesh radio, which is very exciting. So I'm thrilled to be here with you, Scott. I'm very happy to have you. Um, And I think exactly what you talked about with that paper. It's funny, I, I came from more of the operational world. And so the operational world is kind of the cause of the problems that, that data mesh is trying to solve. Um, uh, but it's it's funny how many people say that it, it just so much spoke to their pain because it was, oh, yes, okay, I'm not the only one seeing this. And yes, we are, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over. And yet we're saying we need data quality and data driven and all this. And yet we're not, addressing it at the source. We're not fixing the cause of the problem, which is, you know, these operational models, they have to be able to change. But those changes, unless we think with intentionality, break all of our uh, downstream models on the data side. And it's just, it, it kind of, I think Jamak has talked about this too. It kind of boggled my mind that nobody was really saying this as much out loud. I think everybody was talking about it, but they were talking about how to deal with the impact of it instead of let's prevent it. Like, yeah, let's, let's look to prevent the data quality issues instead of this and, and like have this data as uh, not, not as an asset because she's talked about you just that, that mentality prevents you from thinking of this as something that you want people to consume. It's like you want to hoard it. You, If it's an asset, then you want to grow it and build more of it instead of 
really um, evolve it into something that has a ton of value and that has more and more consumers. So I, I think that just mentality shift is is so crucial. But um, and yeah, I, I think. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> I was going to say I, I first came across your name relative to uh, your blog post on the the data buffet and and things like that. And you've put out a, a lot of uh, good content as well, which we'll we'll link in in the show notes. But um, you know, I think this concept with data mesh of, of breaking it down into a more easily understood, uh, you know, bite-sized chunks, which again, you could think of as yet more food, but um, <laughs> like if people aren't as ensconced in this problem, if they're not totally bought in or they haven't felt this pain and, and things like that, I think these analogies really, really do help. So um, if you, you, I think you were about to add something, so we'd love to hear that. And then if we can jump into kind of your summation of your data buffet analogy and we can go from there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I think what I was going to say was just that for me, I keep seeing organizations, you know, they have the operational data, they understand that they have the data they need and they want to be data driven and they want to use data to make strategic decisions about their business and they know they can improve customer attention. They can do all these wonderful things with data, but they jump ahead to like, how do we become data literate? Do we need to teach everybody SQL? Do we need Tableau for every single person at this company? Right. And it's like, hold your horses. <laughs> like, Let's think about, is the data actually still an afterthought though? Which I think that's what I love about data mesh is it treats data as a product and it's a framework to allow people to really understand how to make data a product and how to give it that sort of first class citizen status of, you know, this is a product that the domains are creating and they need to be thinking about their downstream users in addition to their other work, as opposed to just throwing it over the fence. And that's where I came from was sort of, I was the other side of the fence where people would throw data and I'd have to like pick it up and collect it and try to make sense of it with no support from the upstream folks and trying to help the downstream folks. And so I've sort of been part of that bottleneck. And so in my mind, you know, data mesh helps us remove that bottleneck and restructure the organization around the idea that data is a product. And then you can start worrying about getting Tableau licenses for everybody, that kind of thing. Yeah. And I mean, there's the bottleneck as to scaling, but there's also just like the bottleneck as to figuring out context. Right? Yeah. <laughs> where, where the, if the data engineering team has to understand everything about the business as well as the you know everything else that they've got on their plate it's just not going to work so yeah absolutely but yeah so if, if you could uh if you don't mind if you could jump into your analogy i've, I've got a couple of food related analogies as well myself that i've been working on yeah. so, um, what, <laughs> what, what is the data buffet all right so this came out of um i have a a newsletter that I do with a, a friend of mine who's also in the data world and it's called the sequel. Um, it's sequel.substack.com. And I was sitting on the couch with my husband and we were lamenting that Omicron was starting. Delta had just finished. And, you know, we were saying like, you know, what are we going to do when this whole thing is over? And he said, you know what I really want to do? I want to go to like an all you can eat champagne brunch. And we were sitting there talking about how brunch is the best because you can get pancakes, you can get pad thai, ice cream, salad, pastries, crepes, 
omelets, like literally any food you want. And then on top of that, it's like bottomless champagne, right? And how this is the kind of thing that's, it's totally ridiculous, but it's like a magical place. And we were both saying like, this is our favorite place. And so, you know, there's like stations for each kind of food. There's a carving station, there's a pizza station. Like, it's so cool. And so, of course, you know, my mind then jumps to data mesh as it always does. Um, And so I started to think about the way that like, it's the sum of these wonderful parts and you've got, you know, a pastry chef and a team running the omelet station and a sushi chef. And then you've got the people in the back chopping the vegetables. And so you've got like kitchen teams pulling ingredients together. And then you've got like the end product of like, you know, what's on the buffet. But then you've also got, what do I want to eat? Well, I'm vegetarian. I'm not going to eat certain things. I'm, but, you know, I want a little bit of crunch, a little bit of savory, a little bit of sweet, and then I want some champagne. So I started thinking about, you know, data mesh is, a, is like a data buffet. And so the data engineers being the chefs creating these delicious data products that they're putting out on the buffet. And so I started thinking about the different personas and different people and then how that relates to the buffet. Um. And so, you know, you can, you can also like have teams that help each other out, right? Like the same way you would have, like, I think the example I used in the article was salsa. And so salsa would be a a data product that's used by other data products, right? It's like something that gets used in multiple places. Um, So like customer records or the classic example of something that's used and produced by everybody. Um, And then, you know, the consumer is the consumer. So um So yeah, so that's sort of where that analogy went. And so like the ingredients are the data, the cuisine types, like sushi or omelet or whatever, are the domains. Um, The chefs, I think I likened to the data product owners. The line cooks were like the data engineers. The buffet options were the data products. And then the kitchen was the self-service infrastructure. And then the plate that you create is your business analysis. And then I threw a bunch of memes in there as well, because that's how I roll. (laughs) I I think, uh, would the self-service almost be like the buffet at a, um, or just like a buffet, right? Like where you've got (laughs) the the stuff that's already pre-made where you're going up and just going, this is the, it's not just necessarily, you know, there are the kitchen staff. I'm thinking of, you know, at certain hotels and things like that, that you, yeah. Growing up, we used to go to uh, uh, Embassy Suites and they'd always have this big buffet and you could go and just grab as much bacon as you wanted. Yes. <laughs> uh, wonderful times. Um, and yes. And uh, I think there's also, I don't know that I put this in the in the uh, article, but there's also the governance, like there are kitchen rules, right? Like you got to re- maintain your egg rating, right, for your kitchen. So, you know, you take a new plate every time you go to the buffet. That's part of that governance. So. <laughs> Or, you know, how much bacon can someone take at once? That's another potential governance <laughs> rule. <laughs> True. True. No. Yeah. You, you've come through 73 times. I think it's 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 time for you to, to lay that down. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and I think uh, I, I originally was trying to come up with that, that kind of cuisines thing of domains. And it gets a little confusing when you start to talk about, well, and then you could think of a consumer aligned domain as fusion food, or you can think <laughs> of, okay, there's Indian food, but there's many, many different types of Indian food. Yeah. So Indian food is a domain and each of the different types are subdomains. And, <laughs> you know, like I just, I got way too, um, 
going off the rails uh, on that one. The one that, that I think really helps people to understand the so what is the grocery store analogy is there are there's food there. Right. You at least in the U.S., I don't know exactly how uh, grocery stores are set up or kind of supermarket grocery stores are set up in in other places. But you go there and you can have trust in the, the data. You have kind of the governance as to what how food is labeled, how clean it is, you know, uh, when when can it have or when, like how long before it spoils? Are you able to still put it out on the shelves and, you know, all of those things. And it's it's bisected into, okay, you're going to want this. You're going to want fruit. You go to the, the fruits and veggies section. You want, you know, raw ingredients. You can go there. If you're more of the ML data scientist and you want something that's more raw, then you can go there. If you want something that's more packaged, there's a lot more there, you know, just that, that idea that you don't have to do If you were to, to think about the way that we've done data in most instances, it's very much, um, only certain prepackaged meals. It's only mm-hmm. you're you're trying to yeah. solve a very specific problem, and then if you go and you it whatever is kind of pre-solved isn't the thing that you're looking for, then you have to go and ask somebody, and they have to go check in the back if they've got anything for every single like potential ingredient. And if you ask wrong, that they might you know uh, oh you you ask for broccolini. And they heard broccoli. So they go and they come back and they bring you some broccoli. And you're like, no, I wanted broccolini. It's like, okay, so then you've got to go through this whole uh, thing. And instead of it being, you know, a two minute process of somebody checking the back, it's five, six months. And things might have completely changed. Things might have spoiled from a food perspective. Um, and, And how do you think about evolving your your cuisine and like what your offerings are instead of you have to offer the same thing for all time. Well, let's say we find out that, you know, apples are, are actually just completely poisonous to you for some reason, (laughs) you know, whatever, um, to to the general populace, right? Like not just to one person, but to the general populace, they're probably going to pull apples off the shelf. But the way that we kind of treat data historically is that we're not evolving with the, the, the evolution of, of what's going on, we're not changing what we're doing. And so you have to evolve those data products to add new features, but also kind of remove stuff that's no more, no longer useful. And that business mm-hmm. logic changes as your, as your business changes. And then mm-hmm. the other one that I, I haven't fully put down yet is, but just like thinking about within a, um, a meal, you have, your different dishes within a meal and they make up that meal, right? And it may be that that one dish is your meal. It may be that you're just having stew or whatever, or you're just having an omelet, but it's also you're matching things up. And the way that we typically think about presenting data for users is as raw ingredients. And if you go to a restaurant and they're just giving you raw ingredients, unless you ordered a salad, right? Like you're, yeah. you're not real happy with, with uncooked yeah. ingredients. I don't want my omelet to come out with just uncooked egg and <laughs> an unmelted cheese on it and yeah. all that. So like, yeah, I, I think I called that the meal prep kit, like HelloFresh type thing where it's like yeah. you get the ingredients and you have to do it yourself. Right. 
And, but, but with that, at least they even give you the instructions. Like in most of the time, it's not yeah. even that you have a recipe. It's like, yeah. here's some raw ingredients, go make a dish. And you're like, I, yeah. what, what are these ingredients? I don't even know. <laughs> I, um, yeah, I mean, I think I like the food use cases. Cause I think, you know, obviously we've in data really, I think we've really run through all the water use cases at this point. I think we should just call that one um, with lakes and rivers and streams and everything. But I do think that, um, you know, data mesh can be complicated, right? Like it can be a really complex thing. And, you know, a lot of it's still theoretical at this point and people are building them and that's wonderful. But like, you know, being able to take it and distill it to something that people understand easily, I think is a really powerful thing. So I do like these food use cases. I think I even said um, at one point that, you know, sometimes I eat popcorn for dinner after the kids go down late, right? And that's an Excel spreadsheet. <laughs> so, and, yeah. and having the that kind of concept of like, you ha- you need to provide things for different people as well. Like that, that yeah. Um, I really liked uh, Glue. Um, one of their output ports on all of their data products was export to CSV. And it was yeah. like having that empathy for the users of, okay, like we've prepped this thing. We think that this is ready for you to dump it into a CSV and yeah. that you just have to kind of put your date filters so you don't get you know everything ever in a data product. But like, <laughs> yeah. you know, all, all these people who say never use Excel, it's like, never use Excel for something scalable. Like if you think mm-hmm. that this is, needs to be repeatable then you, or maybe you still kind of poke at it and go, is there something, is there a there there? Is there something here? But, and then you try and work back into that and creating a data product around it. But for a lot of people, it's just the easiest way to, to kind of poke at the data as you're increasing your data literacy, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you want people to jump into Tableau or Looker or whatever, but you know, sometimes know. You just... people love Excel, and there's a reason it's Excel, right? Like, yeah, we all use it all the time. So, yeah, that easy button is is nice. You don't you don't use that as a as a long term data product. HelloFresh has talked about their first data products yeah. were just literally giant Excel spreadsheets, so that people could get a sense of what could be the ingredients mm-hmm. in the buffet. Like, what could you yeah. do? That? But yeah, yeah, I think. Yes, and, and Jamak has definitely said, uh, please no more water analogies as well relative to data mesh. <laughs> I think we're all pretty much over that one. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so um, yeah, I, I wanted to, to talk about this concept around the modern data stack as well. And, and unless you had anything more you wanted to add oh, about food. I mean, we could, we could gab about food all day. But um, <laughs> the modern data stack, how I think about this is the modern data stack is, is a GSD solution. I get stuff yep. done because we're on a relatively clean podcast. That's why it's stuff and not the, the, <laughs> the more prevalent word. But um, to me, it's people that are trying to be as productive as possible, but with fragile integrations between their technologies in a lot of instances. And that fragility, people are frustrated that there's fragility. People from kind of the outside, the architect concept of it are frustrated that there's fragility, but it's because they're building on on an unsafe foundation, right? And if that foundation goes away, 
if that foundation is constantly breaking, why build the most stable thing on quicksand, right? <laughs> like, right. <laughs> or, or even sand, you know, it's sand when it's at low tide, it's going to, the, the tide is going to come in and wash away your foundation. So you're going to have to rebuild it anyway. So you might as well be productive. How are you seeing this kind of modern data stack? Maybe even give your definition of modern data stack before we. Yeah. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah. Um, so to me, I mean, you hear a lot about the modern data stack. I mean, I think there's a conference called the Modern Data Stack Conference. I think it's a five-train conference. Um, but it's basically, to me, describing a standardized, you know, cloud-based data and analytics environment built around, you know, some classic technologies. You've got, you know, your source data going into some sort of data pipeline, and whether that's ETL or ELT or ETLT or whatever. Um, but you're basically... The idea is you're moving that data from the source into an environment that's focused on analytics. And that's typically a large, you know, a target data warehouse or data lake. And then you've got some analytics tool on top of that that helps you create business value out of the data. And that's typically some combination of data curation and data visualization and data science. Um, But to me, the interesting thing is that it's really a legacy stack. I mean, we've been doing this, you know, I'm not going to tell you my age, but we've been doing this for a while now that we've got, you know, mainframes, (laughs) you've got your ETL to Teradata, and then you've got your output in Cognos, right? And that's, that's the classic data stack. And, you know, the idea around that was literally because the mainframe was tuned very precisely for transactional, right? Like we had all of these OLTP databases. And then we had this idea of OLAP or OLAP where you were, you know, having another database that you were tuning specifically for analytics. And so in my mind, the modern data stack is just like a cloud-based hosted version of that in a lot of ways where you've got, you know, say you've got RDS Oracle or Postgres in the cloud. And then you've got ETL or ELT at this place. And, you know, that could be a wonderful hosted service that just moves your data um, into a data cloud data warehouse. And, you know, I'm trying not to use vendor names, but you know what I mean? So, So, I mean, I've built things like this where we had Oracle in a data center, we moved it to Redshift in a, in a, uh, in AWS. And then we ended up, you know, using Looker on top of it. And that's a wonderful modern data stack. And you're doing your analysis in that BI tool. And, you know, that's obviously a much more grown up version of that classic data stack, because you don't have to worry about infrastructure in the same way. You don't have to worry about downtime. You don't have to literally, you know, grab a an air comp- a compressed air canister and like go into a stack and try to like clean up your the dust off of your stack, but you know, it's still, it's a reimagined legacy data flow, but with better tools. And so I've often said like, you know, I'm still dealing with the same issues that I was dealing with 20 years ago. Like if you have historical data change, it could break everything, right? And like you end up with all these problems downstream. You still have this huge production system. You're pulling data from all these different places. And it's only going to get more complex as your business grows. And so it's hard to scale these things well. And then, you know, what started out as an MVP with three tools, you've got like 15 tools. I mean, we've all seen that, you know, diagram of all the different tools that go into the modern data stack and all the vendors. And it's just, it's madness. And so I sort of started thinking about 
reimagining that. Like, what would that look like if you built from scratch, if you like, you know, came from another planet and you were like, let's imagine this, not having any knowledge about that legacy stack. And I think the focus needs to be on speed because, you know, everybody wants their data now, you know, ideally real time scalability so that you can grow or shrink as necessary without having to think about it. Simplicity, because, you know, things, you know, the business side is complex. Let's make the infrastructure and the vendors and the tooling and all of that, you know, focus on optionality, focus on being able to sort of, you know, scale up and down, but keep things simple, right? And then I frankly think we should use the lingua franca of data. So it's SQL. Um, And so when I started thinking about these things, you know, I think a truly modern data stack would really be, you know, leave your source data where it is, use an analytical query engine, and then just do your analysis and the tool off of that. Like we can simplify these things greatly. Um, And then building further off of that, you want to think about how you organize and architect your business around this. And that's where we get back to DataBush to me, because I think it does focus the four pillars, just really reflect that simplicity and that scalability and that speed to insights. I just think that data mesh is cementing its place as like the future of the data ecosystem to me. Well, and I think it's the future in that sense, in that it's not just the data ecosystem, right? It, it, right. it, it pushes into the operational side because the operational side is for, you know, I don't want to say for too long, they've had it too good and it's time for their <laughs> comeuppance, but it's like these two things shouldn't be nearly as separate as they are. And they've been very, very hard walled at most organizations for a very long time as yeah. to you you get the data exhaust and that's good enough. And I think that we need to figure out how, I think there needs to be better tooling for the operational folks to one, figure out how their data is being used if they are presenting their data, but two, like how should they be able to continually evolve their application because the scheme of your application has to evolve. If we start Mm -hmm. to say that that we're going to put a blocker around that, you've basically just, you know, tried to take away all the benefits of agile and microservices and everything that we've, we've kind of come across in the last 20 plus years on the software, you know, application side. So how do we think about that aspect for for providing the the domains the ability the application devs the ability to care because right now they don't have that ability to care because uh-huh. if they try to care they don't have the tools to prevent their changes from breaking everything so if they have a lot of empathy for their downstream people all they're going to be doing is saying, I'm sorry, I'm causing you this pain. Right? Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. um, how do you think about within an organization that doesn't have the buy-in for data mesh and that it's a team that is on the data engineering side that they do have that kind of, you're getting our data exhaust. Like how, I mean, do you think the modern data stack is kind of, a reasonable way to approach that because at least you've got 
that speed, even if you don't have the scalability or the simplicity. Yeah, I mean, no, but I think the simplicity is key to that though, right? You want to make it as easy as possible for the data producer to produce a data product and to like, you know, do as little work as possible, but still produce something that the consumer can actually use, right? And so I think that simplicity and optionality and all those things are key to that argument because you don't want to add cognitive load, right? You don't want to add that cognitive load of like, oh, and here you have to learn all of these new tools. Like that's why I think keeping SQL part of the story is really important because most engineers do know SQL and it's like not a huge learning curve for them to like actually start producing data products. So I do think that simplicity is part of that. I think scalability, because you don't want to have to have them thinking about like, oh, our application's scaling and our data scaling, like how do we produce data products that scale, right? Like, I think those are all pieces of the same story. And then obviously, you know, I've already said SQL, but, and then, uh, and then the performance, right? Like you don't want to have to have them worrying about the performance. So I do think that, there are cases to be made for a variety of vendors at different points along here. But if you're telling them like you have to centralize everything and you have to like produce a data product within this central thing, then you're basically back at the back at, back at the original point, which is like, you know, you've got this bottleneck now. And so you want to stay away from that. I guess where I'm, I'm asking from is if you're in a team that, that doesn't have the ability to change anything relative to what's happening on the application side. If you're a data team, do you think that the modern data stack actually, that that concept makes sense? I mean, like you said, it's it's what we've been doing. Is there, is there as, as people are kind of waiting for their organization to figure out that they need to go towards data mesh, is there something there? Or especially when I'm thinking about startups, right? Like startups, the centralized team, at least providing a lot of guidance and handholding without having to provide the full um, uh, self-service platform from from a data mesh perspective, that how do you get those people to even be enabled? I mean, those are two completely different questions, but like, to me, I think that the modern data stacks kind of make sense if you don't have any control. And, and it's just kind of a, yeah. a, a reaction to I'm going to be productive and get something done because you have no control to the upstream. Yeah. And I mean, I think that's how a lot of organizations adopt the modern data stack because they end up with like one person who is the data team. Right. And that person is like, OK, I'm going to do the easiest thing possible for myself. I, I am not an infrastructure engineer, so I'm going to use everything managed. I'm going to end up with, you know, a quick ETL and or ELT, and then I'm going to use some you know, central data warehouse, right? And so I think that's a really quick and dirty way to spin things up. But I think, you know, the the challenge is what is the inflection point where you change from having that centralized ad hoc data strategy to a more intentional and thoughtful data strategy? So is that sort of where you're going with that? Yeah, well, and yeah, yeah just if you've got no control over the quality of data that, that's coming mm-hmm. in. You kind of have to just do what you can and, and that. But right. I think the other aspect is what what do you see for startups? What do you see for smaller yeah. companies that want to, that are saying they want to do data mesh when I'm saying, no, you shouldn't do data mesh because data mesh has a 
high investment, right, to yeah. do all of the aspects right. of data mesh versus the data sharing culture and work through that and that you can have a data team of three and that the app devs don't have to yeah. learn everything. You don't have to provide them tools until those tools are available for the application right. devs. Yeah. Um, I think that, I mean, obviously there's no answer along the lines of like, once you have 12 consumers, then you need a data mesh, right? <laughs> that would be nice, but that's not there. I do think that data mesh, you know, the story of data mesh starts with the pain points, right? And I think there's a reason for that, that, you know, you've your time to value for data slows down significantly as you scale. And as your data scales, as your organization scales, as your data consumption scales, you get to the point where you have you have consumption that is being affected by bottlenecks, right? And you get to the point where you start to think, hey, like we could be doing more, right? And we, we don't know how to do that with this ecosystem. And so you have to pivot. Like, I don't think any company, regardless of how data-driven they want to be, is going to start with a data mesh, right? And, you know, I'm happy to be proven wrong with that, but, you know, no one-person data team is going to implement a data mesh. But I do think when you're a one-person data team, you have a really strong partnership with the data producers that you don't have when you're a five-person data team or a 10-person data team. And so I think keeping that strong partnership and making sure that the folks who are in what we would call the domains in a data mesh world, the data producers understand that their data is being used as a downstream product and that data is a product from day one. And I think that's what I would recommend for any startup is to treat data like a product from day one, because then it will be less of a cultural shift when you do decide to adopt something more, more like a data mesh. Right. And I think that, um, you know, that pivot point can be less painful and less strategically challenging if you start out as you mean to go on, right? And that I think that communication aspect of it, when you think about data as a product, that mm -hmm. the data engineers are helping you to enable the creation and curation and uh, whatever of that product, that, that yeah. they're part of that. So if you have the, like, I, I almost feel like if you do it right from the beginning, you may never need to go fully towards, you know, Jamak's full vision of data mesh, no matter how large you get, because you've iterated and you've got that culture and you've got that. So, but like, yeah, I, I really am frightened at the number of startups that I see that want to do this because they want the benefits. And it's like the, the return on investment for going fully towards data mesh, I don't think is there for a 300 person company in most instances. There may be a few where it really makes sense, mm -hmm. but like you really want to get to a place where you can have those producers sharing their data easily. Um, mm -hmm. Well, you know, you're, you're talking with uh, customers and prospects and things like that. What are you seeing as the real pain points around data products and data product creation? Is it the interoperability? Is it the speed performance? Is it that the domains just don't have the knowledge? Like, where, where do you think is the, the biggest hindrance in somebody looking to evolve towards a data mesh? Like, not it's not a zero or a one, but it's that journey. Yeah. I think from... From an implementation standpoint, I think there's a lot of 
contracts and transparency and communication that has to be part of the culture of the data mesh. And there's often a pivot to that culture that can be challenging. Um, there's also, you know, the functional aspects of like, how are we defining a data product? Like what tooling are we going to use? You know, what metadata is part of that? What are our domains and things like that? And some, you know, there's been a lot of writing recently about how to define a domain and how to, you know, define a data product in a way that is consistent uh, across the organization. I think there's also the organizational aspect that less has been written about, but I do think it's equally important that, you know, as someone who's, you know, reorged, right? Like I've been through my share of reorgs, I've instituted reorgs in various organizations. I think, you know, adding to the charter of a team that data is now part of your responsibility, as well as all of the other product work that you've been doing, you know, that is additional responsibility and you have to be okay with, you know, from an exec standpoint, from a management standpoint, and from a team building standpoint, you have to really change the charter of that team and say, okay, we now are producing data as a second or third product that this team is responsible for. And what does that look like? What does that mean for each individual contributor on that team? How does that change their responsibilities and their career path? And I think all of that is for the better. I think, you know, no one's going to be like, no, I don't want to do data. Data is not important. I don't care learning about data, right? Like every engineer I've worked with has been totally wonderful about that transition. Um, and I've had people jump at that opportunity, you know, software engineers who are eager to learn about data. I think that's wonderful. But I think that from an exec standpoint, you have to build that into the culture of the organizations, into the culture of the domains, and then into the culture of the company at the top level, that data is a product here, right? And this is something that if you're, you know, you know, coming from the engineering management side of things, like it's part of your sprint, right? Your sprint goals are to think about data and, you know, getting all the way down to the bottom, thinking about data as a product, and then going all the way back up to the top from the exact level. Yeah, well, and I, I think one thing I've been talking about is that adding those responsibilities without adding resources, and that resource can be a, a subtraction of other responsibilities or that there's a uh, lessening of the urgency around those responsibilities or its mm -hmm. additional resources in the platform concept or people, right? Like if you just add more responsibilities, but not the resources, you're, that's a dot, 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 not nice move. I, I <laughs> use a, a different phrase than not nice uh, uh, yeah. when I'm not on the podcast. It's just, <laughs> that's what leads to bad culture because then it's the fight back, right? It's, I've talked to a couple of people who are trying to harangue the domains and they just don't care about serving their data. And I think it's because they don't have the, you talked about mental burden and, and things like that. They don't have the, the spare mental capacity to do that. They're already overloaded. So now you're telling me I've got to learn this new thing and you're just telling me I have to do this. You're not incentivizing me to do this. And it's not just money, but it's like, okay, we need to think about this as a full culture. And, and yes, domains, you're also going to get um, a lot of, of potential better information flowing back into you, but you have to kind of talk at the top and do incentivize and, and 
those people that are leading those domains, they have to get on board so that there is prioritization because otherwise data is always third, fourth, fifth priority, right? Like even if you're in a feature factory, new features are, but most of the time it's, um, okay, we're allocating all this time for new features and we're not allocating any time for re- reduction of tech, de- tech debt. And so all you're dealing with is <laughs> the manifestation, the paying of the, the interest on that tech debt because you're not paying it down. So like data ends up with that six month cycle and you've got people that are doing the things that don't understand it. So it's, it's, mm-hmm. it's tough. Um, what, like when you're talking to a, a you know, a customer or a prospect, what is it that they say is the most difficult aspect around um, kind of building out the, the tooling aspect? We've been talking about the modern data stack. What, you know, I'm not, I'm not asking you to pitch Starburst here necessarily, but, um, but like what, what are they finding is, is kind of those missing gaps or, or where are they struggling? Is it, the cultural mostly and the tooling, even though a lot of it's not there there yet, it's, it's coming along or. I mean, I think it's a, it's a combination of the two because they're willing to make the cultural and organizational changes if they have the tooling to back up those changes, right? Like these things have to move together. So, you know, I do think it's the, it's the technical and functional, like how do we create a data product? Like what, are the domains at our organization? Like what makes a data product? How are we presenting data products to our consumers? How are our consumers discovering data products? How is security part of this story? And there's a lot of planning that needs to go into that to drive the organizational change. Like, I don't think people are, you know, exec teams aren't willing to like you know, disband a centralized data team on a whim, right? Like that's an organizational nightmare to just do that. And I mean, you know, from a change management perspective, the biggest thing driving successful change is transparency. And so I think if you come in without the ideas of how you're going to functionally create those data products that you're responsible for, people are going to feel uncertain and not be happy about that change. But I do think that if you say, okay, this is the interface where you create data products and like you have your own stack that supports your engineering needs, engineering team. And, you know, you have your day job of creating features, but you also have to create these data products, but we're not going to give you people. We're not going to give you resources. Then that's a recipe for disaster. On the other hand, if you say you have your environment here is a mesh experience layer, if you want to use your terminology. Um, and here is where you can take your data products and present them to the consumers. And then the consumers can go in and take those data products and use them in their downstream tools. I think that's really powerful story from the technology standpoint. And then you can reorganize around that, around that idea on your teams as well. And you can have you know, that marriage of the socio-technical sides of things. Yeah, I'm, I'm starting to see, and it might just be a uh, correlation because I've had a few um, interviews that have, have all talked about this in the last uh, week or so, but the concept of not just like starting small from a, a 
conceptual standpoint of, you know, start with one or two or three data products and think about that. But that you start with the, you don't start with the hardest problems first. You start with the um, getting people to get used to sharing their data, right? Where you don't say, hey, this is this is the, the, the most crucial aspect of data for our company. Let's make that, you know, our first or, or second or third data product of trying to tackle that versus like, and, and thinking about that data product evolution as to you can add on to it, especially, mm-hmm. you know, pruning things from a data product is a lot more tough than adding to it, right? If you're adding to it, if you've got proper kind of internal data product marketing concepts, mm-hmm. you can find the the potential consumers for those things. Mm-hmm. But like, if you're, if you're starting from something where it's kind of where, I, where I'm starting to see the concept of, of thinking of way too many storage mechanisms around like polyglot and things like that. How do you make that so that these things are all interoperable and that they still meet standards, but that you're able to store however you want? I think trying to build up that platform and then as a consumer trying to figure out how to actually stitch those things together, it's, mm-hmm. we, we want to have a, a slower introduction to the value of data mesh rather than yeah. trying to, to jump too far too fast. Yeah. And I think before you set up, you know, your federated computational governance and everything, like maybe start to look at what you already have. I think, and perhaps this is naive, but I do think that a lot of companies have some obvious data products. They have data sets that everyone's using, right? Like you always are going to have like, oh, this is our, you know, our quarterly sales thing that all the salespeople are looking at every week. And it comes from this other team, right? Like you're always going to have things that are the obvious first choices and sort of, you know, starting simple is absolutely the way to go. You know, I'm a big believer in agile. I think you start simple and you iterate upon it. Um, you know, I think that, you know, you asked a lot of, <laughs> there's a lot in that question. Yeah, unpack, but I will say you're also kind of teeing me up for Starburst's data products. So I can't not mention it. Um, I do think that, you know, SQL is a common language between data producers and data consumers. I really believe that. I think that, you know, I don't know that I know a single engineer who doesn't know SQL, and I don't think I know a single data analyst who doesn't know SQL, right? And so I do think that is the intersection between those two personas. So I think that using SQL to, saying let's use SQL to create a data product and saying let's use SQL to consume data products and having that common language between the two personas is really powerful. Um, You know, I think there's, there is, a common language there, which is nice. That's not always true between, you know, an exec and an engineer, you know, they often speak very different languages. So I do think that um, that's something that I, I think it's important to lean into or the commonalities between um, the producer and the consumer there, because, you know, when you start to think about contracts and how you produce a data product that, you know, can be understood you know, being like, okay, here's the SQL we use to produce this data product so that person can understand it. But then also defining all of that metadata that surrounds that data product around here's what I'm presenting to you and having it in a, in a way that the consumer can easily understand what they're looking at and then take that and do, you know, the secret sauce, which is actually creating insights from that. I mean, that's really powerful. Yeah. I, 
I struggle with that on the, you've got to use it to create the data products, but I do think then you are, you know, Jamak has talked about this in a lot of instances you want to embed in the code of the data product. If somebody wants to dig Mm -hmm. in there, what was used to create this, right? right? That you have the lineage that is embedded within it. And so that way you have the ability to track back. I've, I've kind of been talking about even the concept of lineage not extending into your source system is just insane to me. So like to me, yeah. every source system that's doing CDC should also have a, we're currently using this version of, of our schema, right? So like then, oh, this pipeline broke or whatever. And it's like, okay, but like that's because the schema version changed and you can see Okay, yeah. at this point, you know, this uh, got combined into this data product, which then got combined into yeah. that data product, which got combined into that data yeah. product. You can track through what broke where and why and more easily find that that type of, of concept. But we're just not doing that. We're not we're not telling yeah. the app devs that they have to tee people up for um for their data to be usable. And there, there just seems to be a lot of, maybe maybe people have tried it and it just doesn't work. I know people think of that as being like, oh, every single time you have to make a call to a centralized schema metadata lake or whatever. It's like, no, like no. it's just the system knows, is there a schema change? The system should know that it should be able to drop that in. But yeah. um, maybe I'm crazy with that, but like just like that intentionality. Intentionality, I get made fun of a lot because I use that word way too much, but I also think that doing everything with intention makes sense. Yeah. Um, no, and I think um, for me, this gets back. The reason I like SQL is because it's simple, it's scalable, you know, and it's fast, especially if you're using the right tooling. Right. I just, I think that those four things play together and I, I don't know, like, I think we should stick with what works in a lot of ways, which in my mind is SQL for that. I, I get a little concerned as well when people talk too much about performance relative to data mesh because it's not there to serve like those real time or real time ish operational needs because as soon as you start to optimize for those, you move away from offering things up in a way that is optimized for analytical usage. And so, you know, this caused a lot of back and forth and, and rifts in the in the data mesh community at one point. But I think if we're trying to create a, a concept of data preparedness, which I think is, is a big thing of data mesh, is when you've got a question, you can go and find the answer, right? It's not that you, that you just have the ability to talk to the person who might have the answer. The uh, In a lot of cases, the data should be out there already. It might not be in the exact format that you need, and you, then you need to go and talk to the producer about that as to, oh, okay, what about this and this? Can you make these alterations or additions to your data product? But like, I get concerned when people talk about, oh, well, my my performance, yes, it needs to be performant enough that it's not frustrating for users, but I don't really care if, if a cross data product query takes 10 seconds versus half a second. Like to me, that difference if it's if it's something that's going to be repeated, yeah, you should make that into its own data product so that it's ready, right? But if you're having somebody that's data spelunking and it takes a little bit of time, I'm just thinking of the XKCD, the old yeah. one of 
where they're they're uh, battling with swords and they're like riding around on office chairs and it's like what are you doing and it's like codes compiling oh okay right like yeah like, you can have that that little bit of break where it doesn't have to be now 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 but you do have to have it be performant enough and cost performant enough especially where it's mm-hmm. not yeah something that it's just I don't know it's something I that, mean honestly you can. There's the trade-off between speed and cost, right? Like you can make anything run super fast these days if that's what you need. It's just going to cost you more, right? So like, you know, I can make your query speed, right? Like I can make it sing. It's just you have to be willing to pay for a little more hardware underneath that, right? Um, yeah, that's classic trade-off, I think, in my mind. And that that's where people saying that every data product should be real-time, just it just confuses me because it's like if you don't need it don't do it right and if you do need that real time that should not necessarily be on the mesh as is because again it's going to be optimized for speed so you want to cut out all the cruft whereas when there's the the cruft for that specific use case whereas a data product doesn't have a specific use case it has the use case of sharing data about the domain in a way that represents that domain or the producer aligned, the source aligned data products do. And, you know, then you have the, the consumer aligned data products and everything from that. But it's it's about sharing that information in such a way that is able to be to answer multiple questions instead of I need to optimize everything to this super, super speedy level. Then you want to actually focus on that speed <laughs> and people having complex queries against your data product are going to slow down the super use case for speed. It's just, mm-hmm. I don't know. It's, it's yeah. been something that's been bothering me. Are, are you seeing that customers um, are, are doing this or is this that engineers want to engineer? Technologists want a technology. It's a little bit of both. I do think that um, the real-time use cases I've seen, that's more a product feature, right? That's less of a data product use case because the real-time need is because you're using data to go back into your product to improve it, like your search, right? Like that's a classic example, I think, is that, you know, your search would be affected by search results and therefore you're using ML to improve search results, right? And so that's a product feature. That's not a data product. That's an actual product, right? Sorry, I shouldn't say actual product. It's feature product. Um, So I do think like you have to think about your use cases. And to me, um, it depends how the data is being used. And I do think, you know, it depends if you're focusing more, like you said, on source aligned or consumer aligned data products. Um, I typically think in terms of consumer aligned because I think a product is consumer aligned. Um, But um, yeah, I I don't see too many cases of that yet, but I mean, we obviously have a lot of customers doing real time and doing ML, so. And, and, and those are highly, highly val- valid. And what you might have is that the output of that ML model ends up on the data mesh as it, but like trying to have this big mix of these things, it just, it, it creates weird incentives. And you might say, oh, well, this, this data would be really useful in a data product mixed with this other data, but that other data isn't produced in real time. So if I have to offer it in real time, then I have to then also do that in real time and then i have to 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 spend more money to produce it that way but also like more around the um real-time check of data quality and monitoring you know observability all that fun stuff and it's just like 
you, you, you can get yourself into a lot of trouble. And that, that's where I think people starting for the hardest challenges with data mesh, you're just going to end up, you've got, you've got to focus on building the muscle around the organization. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, um, so I, we're, we're coming up on, on an hour here. This has been oh, a great, wow. great conversation, <laughs> but, um, uh, is there anything that you wanted to cover that we didn't or, or, uh, um, I think Data Nova is going to be really exciting. I, um, I'm speaking with my product manager about our new Starburst data products product, which, you know, I'm, is near and dear to my heart. My team's been working hard on it. I think it's going to be really useful in the world of the data mesh. So I hope everybody can join and listen to that. And we'll drop a, a link in the show notes as well to, uh, to Data Nova so people can and jump in to do that again. This is a takeover week. And uh, as other conferences come up, if people have ideas that they want to do a takeover week, please do get in contact. But um, so this this has been phenomenal. Where, where can people find you? I'm, I'm going to drop links in the show notes. So I'm going to drop a link to the data buffet, to Data Nova, to your SQL Substack. Mm-hmm. What what else uh, do you prefer? Twitter or LinkedIn or yeah, Twitter or LinkedIn. I'm what I'm not super active on those, but yeah, I do I do uh, do a lot more observation on those than I do posting. But yeah, I'm absolutely. Or just Colleen at Starburst.io. Okay, that is fantastic. So thank you so much, Colleen, for spending the time and sharing your your context around data mesh. And thanks everyone for listening. I want to thank my guest today, Dr. Colleen Tarto, Director of Engineering at Starburst. As she mentioned, catch her presentation at Data Nova on the second day, February 10th at 12.30 p.m. Eastern or 5.30 p.m. GMT. I get to a sneak preview of it and it looked pretty cool. There's also links to the other things that we had mentioned, including Colleen's contact info, her sub stack, and her post specifically on the data buffet in the show notes. One last reminder to sign up for the Data Mesh Summit by clicking through the link in the show notes. Again, this will show Starburst that a partnership with Data Mesh Radio is a good thing and that we can get transcripts for more episodes going forward. Thanks. Please enjoy this outro music as provided by Rathin Sauni, who's a solution architect at Starburst and goes by the name of DJ Mesh. It is almost three minutes long, so I want to make sure people are aware of that.
incredibly powerful distribution mechanism. It's a great way of getting software in the hands of many people. It's a great way of getting software in the hands of many people. And then you can do your analytics. I think is impossible.